Hello, welcome to another episode of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition's podcast, AJCN in Press. My name is Kevin Klatt, and I am here today with Dr. Dylan McKay to talk about his newly accepted publication, Genosets for APOE and CYP7A1 RS3808607 variants do not predict LDL cholesterol lowering upon intervention with plant sterols and a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. If you're not familiar with AJCN, we love declarative explanatory titles, and that that uh, title has a lot to pick apart. But before we get into the paper too much, Dylan, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, thanks, Kevin. Um, my name is Dylan McKay. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Manitoba uh, in the Department of Food and Human Nutritional Sciences and in uh, and internal medicine. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. Uh, so this topic has everything from plant sterols to LDL cholesterol and how genotypes may or may not predict the LDL cholesterol response to plant sterols. So how did we get to this this world? What are plant sterols? Okay, yeah, let's start with plant sterols. So uh, plant sterols are basically a, a dietary supplement. Um, you know, they were probably, the original work on them was, uh, was a, a LDL lowering uh, drug, I think, in the, in the early, uh, like the 1960s. Uh, before statins, and, and then and then as a dietary supplement again, um, you know they were they were a byproduct of some some of the oil seed uh, industry and things like that, and and they're basically compounds that that are plant you know, plant cholesterol analogs. So you know mammals and, and animals have cholesterol, and the and the plants have uh, plant sterols. You know there's the the two main ones are cytosterol and campesterol, and there's various derivatives and 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 you know, slight modifications of those, and they may mostly do a lot of what cholesterol does in in mammals in in plants. You know, and they're involved in cell membranes and and signaling and uh, you know uh, plant immune immunity that kind of stuff. Uh, they do all kinds of different things in plants, and uh, you know we've people figured out that if you uh, if you consume large amounts of them, uh, that they can uh, they can lower LDL cholesterol and, and total cholesterol um, and. You know, since then they've worked out the mechanisms. Mostly, it's related to competitive inhibition. Uh, you know, at the, at the micelle and, and enterocytes kind of. Um, we also have a very well developed system in humans to to get rid of them because uh, we we don't want to have a high level of plant sterols in our blood. Uh, you know, some people have genetic predispositions uh, to high plant sterol levels, and and they're associated with really bad things. So you know. Uh, phytosterolemia is, is the condition and, and that can lead to, you know, premature cardiovascular death and atherosclerosis in like three, three-year-olds, five-year-olds. It's really a really horrible, rare disease. Um, but in the general population, they, they work as a, as a cholesterol lowering supplement. And so, um, you know, you can, you can get them in, in milk, uh, beverages, yogurts, capsules, that kind of thing. They're, they're normally, uh, phytosterol esters that, uh, that get put into food products and sold as, you know, cholesterol lowering foods, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So in the States here, there's a lot of them in like butters, plant-based butters and margarines and things like that. Pretty yeah. Common. Margarines is the, is the big, uh, is the big vehicle. And that's actually what we used in all of the trials as well was the, 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 um, the fatty, uh, the phytosterol esters in, in the, uh, in the margarines. And that's just the most, uh, well, I guess, developed and, and, uh, and certainly the, the formulation that seems to have the most success in the clinical trials. There's a really deep, uh, clinical trial literature in in in, in plant sterols, uh, you know, something that, something like 
200 <laughs> clinical trials. In fact, we don't need to do any more, I think, for the, for the LDL <laughs> cholesterol. But I did more. <laughs> we did more. And, and this is sort of this is actually a project that started in my, my PhD because um, there seems to be some, you know, there's, there's a seems to be a heterogeneity in how well people respond to plant sterols. And, and that's pretty common for almost any intervention. But we were wondering if there was a way to predict it or if it was associated with phenotypes and genotypes. That, that was the, essentially the, the point of my PhD. Um, and, and it was building on, on all this other clinical trial data that, you know, they, there was always this like 5 to 15% of the populations that had no change in LDL cholesterol. And even some people we thought that might have cholesterol levels going in the opposite direction when they, um, when, when they took the plant sterols. And um, so that led to, uh, you know, one of uh, one of the clinical trials, the, the clinical trial from my PhD that, that was uh, published in AJSN in 2015, where, you know, we were looking at the literature and there was some suggestion that cholesterol synthesis markers might predict how you responded to, to the um, plant sterile supplementation. Uh, and, you know, reading that literature, we kind of developed a hypothesis and, and others had, had suggested this. They'd associated that if you had high synthesis markers, you may not uh, respond uh, to, to, to the uh, plant sterols. And, you know, intuitively, that, would, that, maybe that would kind of make sense. Makes right? sense, right? Like if you were someone who synthesizes a lot of cholesterol, uh, then, then inhibiting your absorption uh, is likely um, not to matter very much. And, and then it might even, you know, I even... We, you know, with the, the authors, we we're trying to figure out why someone would have their cholesterol go up. And, and uh, you know, maybe someone who's a high cholesterol synthesizer, you lower their their absorption, and then the synthesis may even go up higher. And, and you know, the overall, you know, a net gain, and that could potentially yeah. explain it, right? Overcorrection. And so that really formed the the basis of my PhD work. And uh, you know. What we did for that trial is we got the idea of, of looking at uh, lithosterol to cholesterol ratio. So lithosterol is sort of a precursor on the cholesterol synthesis pathway. And so if you have high levels in your in your blood, it's been related uh, to the isotopic cholesterol synthesis rates as a, as a predictor of higher synthesis. And, and so we basically screened people who had elevated LDL cholesterol, but, you know, no diabetes and, you know, otherwise reasonably healthy. Um, and we... we we looked for the people who had the highest and the lowest levels of lithosterol to cholesterol. So basically the, the top third and the, and the bottom third. And most people fell like right, actually it was the top 25% and bottom 25%, I think. And, you know, there's a lot of clustering right in the middle. So we were trying to get on the either side of that. Uh, and then, then we gave them plant sterols. And our hypothesis was that, you know, the where the high synthesizers wouldn't respond. And that's actually what happened. We had, we had, uh, you know, the, the high synthesizers didn't, um, you know, didn't respond to the plant sterols as well. And we, we actually had, you know, much higher cholesterol lowering in, in the low synthesizer group. Uh, and then building on that, because, you know, this was a measure that we had to, we originally were using mass spec and then we went to, to, to go with gas chromatography, um, to, to screen and, and measure this. It wasn't a feasible way to predict response to plant sterols. And, and that was our goal then was like, well, can we, we know these people exist or they, they might exist. And then how do we predict it? And then how do we predict it, predict it in a way that we could like let people know before they buy the margarine or, or that kind of thing. Right. Um, so this had been, uh, you know, 
you need specialized machines. It's probably not going to work well in the lab. It certainly can't work on a consumer scale. So we decided maybe there were some genetic uh, predictors that uh, that would you know associate with this synthesis or associate with this non-response. So we took the took the trial where we had the high and low cholesterol synthesizers, and we we tried to replicate an association previously shown uh, from a trial in Spain uh, with this uh, gene in CYP7A1. Uh, you know, a, uh, sorry, a SNP in that in that gene, uh, RS three eight zero eight six zero seven, and we actually replicated that association from from the uh, the the work uh, from uh, Spain, and, and we were you know we we published that as well it, it, again uh, you know the, the sort of the the post hoc associations you know that that CYP seven A one RS eight RS three eight zero six zero seven was associated with um, with response and non response in sort of a, a, do- a gene effect. It's actually sort of what we saw um, in the pattern, and we also saw that the ApoE isoform uh, sort of may have interacted with that. And the people who had the E four um, E uh, four were were responding uh, as well. And that had been shown sometimes in the previous li- literature and sometimes uh, not. Um, and so that was my, my PhD work, basically, that we showed some post hoc associations between a couple of variation, genetic variations in response to plant sterols. And, uh, you know, I was really excited about that. For, for me, the next question was, you know, can we replicate that a priori? You know, and I've really gotten into clinical trials methods, and and you know the the idea of looking at you know multiple variables afterwards. I worried you could find something that you're just sort of chasing your tail. You, you, you it's it's not a it's a figment of of chance kind of thing, right? And uh, and so uh, yeah, it's also we, it's like it's kind of amazing that you can have this like well defined phenotype. We're using isotopes to clearly define like people with very high endogenous cholesterol synthesis rates and very low. And then the idea that that would be like entirely explained by a couple of genotype, genotypes would be like an amazing goldmine finding. <laughs> yeah. And that, the thing was, that was like, there was a slight significant, you know, like just in the, in the test that we, we had a couple more of the high synthesizers in, in one of the, the genotypes, but that type of test post hoc is, you know, it's like splitting a deck it can sometimes end up with, uh, with more, you know, more kings in one side than the other. And, and so I really wanted to replicate the association by taking those genotypes, because if we could do that, then we have a, you know, like we have a legitimate plant sterile response test. Um, so that started a very long journey on the subsequent trial uh, that was just published. And, and, and um, you know, we were, we were able to interestingly fund that um, trial with sort of, a combination of a of a company that what was interested in in response tests like selling the genetic tests, and then a company that made plant sterile uh, margarines and things like that. So you know they, there was almost competing interests there. I, I kind of like that balance. That one company would benefit if if some of the consumers didn't respond to their product, but the and the other company would benefit if everybody responded, right? Uh, but we convinced them to agree to to this this you know like. To fund a trial where we test if this, this if this thing works, and um, and you know, from for a company that sells plant sterols, a test that that lets people know it works that might actually help them sell more, right? So so there was interest in it uh, from from both sides, right? Um, and so what we did in that this this uh, trial is we decided 
we wouldn't look at the the cholesterol synthesis through mass spec or, 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 you know, gas chromatography, it's too much time. We just genotyped people. So, but we did the genotyping in advance. It was an inclusion criteria. So they had to meet a bunch of criteria already. So they had to have cholesterol that was elevated, but they couldn't be on statins and they couldn't be too high. And, you know, so, and then we added two or three genetic variants that they, they had to have to fit into different categories that we wanted to fill uh, to test this this test to see if it's it was predictive of plant sterile response and, and this trial took a long time and i learned a lot of things from it you know from my phd i would say don't do a phd where you have to screen people with gas chromatography and have very rare inclusion exclusion criteria like because by definition we were excluding like 50 percent of the people that came in the door or more and then my follow-up would be don't do a trial where you have to genotype and you're looking for combinations of genotypes because like even a rare plus a common is still very rare. Don't do that unless you have a huge cohort of already genotyped people. That's the biggest learning that, that, uh, that I got from this trial. Yeah. I was going to ask if you like look in thousand genomes or HapMap, like what are the frequencies of these allelic variants that you're looking at? They, they were pretty common. So, you know, like we, we, we knew it wouldn't be feasible when we were selecting the, 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 the ones to test in, um, in my, for my PhD work that we couldn't pick like a, a one percenter kind of thing. Right. No, these were like 20%, uh, you know, uh, map, uh, kind of, kind of, uh, genes at least other, otherwise just wouldn't do it. But combinations of those quickly become <laughs> very rare. And that's the, you know, we learned that the hard way in this trial, it was very difficult to recruit for. Uh, and, and interestingly enough, even after we, so we ended up having to stop the trial early just because you, you run out of time and resources. And, and, you know, at some point it, it wasn't like we had to stop it for futility and, and we, we had screened over 400 people, I think. And, and, you know, we just weren't getting people that were eligible and the baskets of, of, of individuals with combinations of, of, of genetic variants or genosets, um, they weren't full the way we wanted to. We had to collapse some together. Um, but the one that we thought was going to be predictive of, of non-response actually was one of the more common ones. And I swear, for some reason, when we identified people with that set, like 30 to 40% of them, after we told them they were eligible, were like, yeah, I just don't want to do the clinical trial. Clinical trials in humans, right? Like it's uh, it's very tough. I don't want to eat tough. margarine every day. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Or, or, you know, like, oh, can I still go on vacation during this? It's a whole month, you know, and you get all the, all kinds of reasons, right? Uh, and so we're, we're doing this in, in, in Winnipeg as well. So there's a big difference in seasons in Winnipeg. Half of the, the summer is amazing. And then everyone's out of the city in their cabin. And the winter is very cold. And a large percentage of people are in Arizona, um, you know, at least in, in the demographics that we were we were looking at. And so people would probably, you know, be like, oh, in September, they're like, oh, it's probably I'll be around for a couple months. I'll do this. And then we tell them that they were eligible and they're like, oh, I'm going to be gone for this time. So it was a nightmare to, to, to recruit for. But we did we did get you know, we did get something and we had to we, we wanted, you know, we have to analyze it. We had to get it out there. And and interestingly enough, and this this was the same design for both trials, essentially, they were two period double blinded crossovers. So, so people, when we determined they were eligible would come in, they consumed plant sterile margarines that, or a placebo for four weeks, and then they washed out for four weeks and they came back and got the other treatment. And, 
and you know we got the packages uh, double blind, and 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 it was it was a great, I think, solid design for testing response to plant sterols. Individuals are their own controls long enough that we should see changes in, in LDL from plant sterols because that happens at about like two weeks and, and maximizes at, at around four to five weeks. So um, we did the, the trial and and we saw that people across all of the geno sets that we set up um, responded to the plant sterols. And so what we basically did is uh, we showed that we didn't have a very good test for uh for plant sterile response despite you know the 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 previous literature out there and our own work that that suggested it would uh it would be predictive of response but they all did all the genocides did lower their cholesterol so you have that positive control the plant sterols were working it's just yeah yeah i know it was it was actually if you if you didn't see what you wanted to see this kind of answer is a is like was a we didn't see what we hypothesized, but we got an answer, right? It would have been worse if all of the groups sort of didn't respond, but we had response in all of them. So we could, that's what sort of, you know, saved the trial is that I, I you can look at this data and say that group we thought wouldn't respond, responded. And so did the other two. So, so in that way, we answered the question, I, I think, without actually, you know, um, we, we didn't get to do it the way we wanted to, but we still answered the, the main question. So. Cool. So plant sterols work regardless of your CYP7A1 and APOE genotype. That's that's what I would uh, I would say. Yeah, uh, unless of course it has something to do with really high and very and very low synthesis, and and you know that that's what we had in the previous trials, and we never tested that. But then you're getting into like even rarer and rarer combinations of a phenotype and genotypes, and uh, and yeah. So, but for uh, for from from our result, is it feasible to use? this combination of 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 variants to to sell a test you know can we put it in a uh a direct to consumer plant sterile response test and i'd say no i mean we 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 did a clinical trial that said that's a bad idea because it doesn't predict and and i think i think that's also something that for the field of nutrigenetics i want to see more trials like that because this this is not something that's been done a lot uh, for 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 the the nutrigenetic testing that that exists. Um, you know, I can think of like maybe one or two other trials uh, that that have done that kind of a design where you genotype in advance with a hypothesis and then show that the the tests are predictive. Yeah, it's definitely something <clears throat> in the field. There's not much replication, and there's not much a priori defining of genotypes that you're going to look at and as effect modifiers. There's a lot of uh, post hoc analysis, and you know, I've done some of this work as well. And we've talked about this offline about how how model specific effects can be, and if you don't report everything that you actually ran, you can really sell a nice kind of sexy narrative about genotype determining the response. But it is. Uh, it's as much luck and chance as it is a, a real physiological thing in many ways. Yeah, I think there's a real risk there. I mean, you know, there's there's sort of infinite possibilities of variants. And if you don't report them all and you're not correcting and, and you find one and then you sort of uh, put, put blinkers on that one and, and develop your study, it, it can turn into something where you're like, hey, I've got this great association. And, and, and right now, that's the standard for what a lot of the tests are, are being sold based on, I think. Or maybe it gets replicated like once or twice in, in post hoc. But, but I, I think this trial suggests that, you know, 
there's there's potential risk to that, right? And uh, and I like the idea of of you know a priori testing. It's just an a extra test, and I think. I think it's a clinical trial design that can be done for a lot of the very popular um, you know, nutrient response tests that are out there. And I don't understand why it hasn't in, in many cases, other than the fact that I just said it was really hard and it costs money. <laughs> <laughs> well, so one of the things I'm always in following this field, and if you really kind of take a magnifying glass to the paper, is you'll, you know, you can have a, a wild type variant, or you can have a heterozygote for an allele, or you can have. Uh, you know, a homozygous variant. And from paper to paper, people will treat heterozygotes as needed for sample size reasons and plop them with the affected, you know, collapsing the three genotypes into affected versus unaffected. And so how did you guys handle that in this one? Yeah, um, well, we, we, we had, we actually published a, a, tr- a trial manuscript on that. And we, we, we describe how we, we had, we'd wanted more groups with different combinations and, and we simply did collapse in that way um, you know maintaining from from our original trial that it was that it was uh, you know the RS3808607 TT group plus the uh, the uh, apoe 3 that that were the ones that didn't seem to to uh, respond in fact I think their their mean cholesterol actually went up in, in that trial. So, so that was always our non-responder group and we ended up collapsing other groups. For instance, originally we wanted to have enough to, to screen enough to get people who maybe had the, the APOE2 isoform, but we had quickly had to abandon that because it was just like, they're very even rarer. We didn't get any uh, people in our 400 that had that. So we basically had to just sort of scrap those groups and then add, and then we redistributed the end that we had hoped to do in the trial across the other groups. Um, and, and that's described in, in the trials paper, actually. And, and why we did that, because, you know, rare is rare and, and combinations of rare to rare is incredibly rare. And if you don't have something like, I don't know, like maybe the, the NHS, you know, like, population where it's where it's already genotyped and and hopefully there's a mechanism to recruit based on that it it makes these kind of trials really tough now more of those databases are being or cohorts are are being created and and you know there's there's often mechanisms where you could potentially contact and recruit those so i think that's 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 the way to go in the in the field is that you know you get you get something that you think is going to be a good test and then you go to a big cohort that has people already genotyped in the tens of thousands and and you, you, you know, you, you, you test the test that way. Um, Yeah. It sounds like, I I mean, the big takeaway I have from this is more not unfortunately for the current paper, it was null with the genoset, but the previous paper that, you know, if you could phenotype large numbers of individuals to classify them as high versus low endogenous cholesterol synthesizers, you could do more large-scale genetic analyses to potentially figure out why that is, assuming if that phenotype is due to, is largely determined by genes. But being able to predict that without having to use isotopes to then look at that sort of phenotype within clinical trials sounds at least biologically quite plausible and a low-hanging fruit that folks who don't respond to dietary interventions for cholesterol lowering might be because they're just have this endogenous capacity to to respond to whatever we're uh, we're doing so that they produce more cholesterol. Yeah, I know the the, the results of this paper don't 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 uh, don't in any way suggest that if you have high mm-hmm. cholesterol synthesis you you may you, you know you'd benefit from plant sterols. I still think that's a, a valid 
you know, potential hypothesis that could be tested more. And I know it's something that's actually, you look at um, in, in reverse statins are synthesis uh, in, inhibitors, essentially, right? And, and, I, and there's been some associations between non-response and, and, uh, and low cholesterol synthesis. So I bet you people, because of that, that uh, the pharma angle, this pro- work has probably been been looked at quite a bit, you know, because it could be potentially a, a, a pharmacogenetic marker on, on the other end, right? Or, um, but do we need it if if we have a bunch of medications that we can just keep adding to people to low, lower the LDL, uh, right? Like, you know, if they don't respond to the statins, you can just put the the PCSK nine or yeah, I was gonna well, say if like you can afford it, those versus... are super really expensive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 and, and you know the the ezetimibe is, is such a potent inhibitor of cholesterol absorption. If you want a lower cholesterol absorption, it, that's a much better choice, I would say, in terms of efficacy versus the plant sterols, right? Uh, the the pharmaco drift effect in nutrition, where the longer you spend in the field, the more you think, oh, we could just do this with drugs. Well, I, you know, and I understand that there are people who who you know, like you know, consumers and and people who who want to avoid that, and you know, plant sterols are natural. But as I just said, there are people with rare genetic disorders where plant sterols kill them. So you know, it's not this the, the natural. Uh, it's a good example of the the natural fallacy here. Uh, those individuals with phytosterolemia have to avoid, you know, plant fats, fruits and vegetables, <laughs> nuts. I mean, they're they're eating meat and maybe potatoes kind kind of thing, and they're on all of the the cholesterol lowering medications because the same transporters that that pump out plant sterols, so it's ABGC five G eight, and they're they're in the, along the gut, but they're also in the in the liver. Um, they they tend to to pump out cholesterol as well because there's you know promiscuity in the in the transporters between the two compounds because they're very very similar um, and, and so you you tend to end up with really elevated plant sterile levels but also elevated uh, cholesterol levels so yeah oof no bueno uh, yeah yeah I mean but I, I guess I could see still why industry is interested in this topic in general and it probably makes more sense to just add it to food and then everyone's exposed uh, and then genotype prediction is really matters a lot less in that sort of instance it's not like you're going to have uh, targeted product development towards individuals based on genotypes anytime soon well i mean or maybe you will i mean that's the that's the that's the promise right like a lot of a lot of a lot of food companies and 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 you know uh, startups are are looking at this, uh, you know, precision nutrition and, and, you know, there's funders. I mean, the NIH just come out with that, that big, uh, those big studies, uh, you know, where we, uh, where we optimize the diet based on all kinds of things. And, and I think that's, I think that's one of the things, right. You can't just do it on genes. You know, if I, if I had to pick one, I'd probably do it on, on my metabolome because it's kind of like what's happening, which could be a factor of all kinds of the other things. Uh, you know, my gut microbiome, my genetics, all the other things I'm exposed to might be reflected there. So there's, there's even less clinical trials on, 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 you know, adapting diets to gut microbiome or metabolomics and things like that. So, so you know, it's, a, it's an area with the precision nutrition where there's not a lot of you know, classically evidence-based nutrition, uh, uh, driving it. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of, a lot of this stuff is the regulatory steps are at inaccessible tissues. I mean, cholesterol or cholesterol balance in the body is really determined largely by the liver. And, you know, you might think that like the liver transcriptome would be the most likely thing to explain, 
you know, the circulating metabolome is going to be a, a cause, but also a consequence of whatever is happening at the level of the liver and cholesterol metabolism. And so it's the precision nutrition has an incredible number of challenges, I think. And uh, it would, as we see here, like this is a really great small scale way to do it where you're phenotyping folks with isotopes into clear metabolic uh, phenotypes where you've got high and low cholesterol synthesizers, and then you're trying to figure out predictors of that. But really upscaling that um, is going to be a very expensive thing to do and require some of these more siloed old school metabolic methods that are really well worked out for defining phenotypes well. And then you know, use of modern omics technologies that are really high throughput and in a discovery manner, but then doing that in a way that's repeated and uh, the association becomes very clear is a huge challenge for the field. And I, I think we need to not only invest in it, but also choose questions that we think have a high likelihood of, uh, of working out. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, the cost effectiveness, right? Like if you have alternatives that, that are easier, that do what, what you want to do with a diet or, you know, like you could do all that testing for the optimization, but if it, if it's very, if, if it's not, you know, like we only have so much money for, for research and, and things like that, there could be better ways with, even within nutrition to like invest that for, for healthier, you know, uh, human years gained, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, so it's always, it's always, it'd be, it's really cool to do and it, it, it's fun, you know, but there's also like, just cause we can do it. Should we do it? There's always, always that. Right. Yeah. A lot and of as commercial... you approach optimal health, right. You, it's harder and harder to measure what's getting better. Uh, and that's kind of a, a trap, you know, the top of the mountain trap, you know, the, the in, in this kind of optimization. Yeah, I think that's the biggest problem for precision nutrition is what outcomes are we actually going to measure and are they going to be clinically meaningful? A lot of what we just talked about is focusing on LDL cholesterol, which is really only a surrogate outcome. And and we were still hoping that that lowering produces uh, a net positive for cardiovascular event lowering, which I think the evidence generally says that it does. But getting beyond these few surrogate outcomes that we have that we can reasonably measure in folks is going to be a huge challenge and we're going to continue to rely on observational epidemiology quite a good bit to to really advance precision nutrition forward because these trials are just insanely hard to do and we can't do them for long enough yeah and the, the you know the other side of that is uh you know that's an assumption we have trials for other agents that the ldl cholesterol goes down and it it, it doesn't you know it doesn't CTP decrease mortality. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, you know, it's a uh, surrogate outcomes. It's, it's dangerous. I, you know, I'm hoping that, that, you know, with, with different trial designs and, and, you know, like something like if you develop large platform trials for, for nutrigenetics and a lot of people in the field were willing to get together and agree on, you know, a platform design, and then go through some questions that, that everyone could work together to answer, it would be the most resource efficient way. If you look at clinical trials during COVID-19, right? If anything, what we've learned in clinical trials, at least, is that platform designs are amazing for answering questions, but it needs everybody to work together. And that often is tough to convince. I mean, thankfully, in the pandemic, a lot of groups got together and decided to answer the same trials. But, but it means some people not being fully in charge sometimes. And, and that's a, it's a, 
that's a that's a that can be really tough if you know the the people who who often do do their own trials uh, in, in well, any. Well, just field, the right? nature of the system is hyper competition to beat out everybody else to get the limited pot of money, and and I think yeah. we need to really revamp the funding system to allow for collaborative science and having the research infrastructures in place to undertake these sorts of things because individual groups are not going to really be able to answer these questions. So. Yeah, and funders could dictate it, right? Like, you know, big philanthropic organizations and large funders could say, listen, guys, listen, people, we're not going to uh, give all of you individual little small pots to answer these questions, build a platform, maximize the efficiency, and then we'll fund that to ask these questions in some order that, that you guys, that, 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 that you come up with. Yeah, well, the NIH just launched or just announced who won the sort of big center grants for the NIH Precision Nutrition Initiative uh, a couple of days ago after as we're recording this. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how that all goes. But I think this is a really nice example of your paper is just a really nice example of the challenges in how this is actually going to take place and potentially the limits of relying on just genotype and also the challenges in, in phenotyping individuals to identify responders and non-responders and really metabolically distinct phenotypes that influence potentially meaningful or, or not meaningful outcomes like surrogates that we rely on. And it's emblematic of the challenges that are, are set forth for folks who want to work in this field. But it gets me excited in ways. And I think that uh, a lot of what we're talking about too here is chronic disease. And I, I always like to point out that nutrition and food affect quality of life and other things that are much more immediately measurable that you can have uh, hard endpoints and not just try and extrapolate out what will happen 20 years from now with your cardiovascular risk. Yeah. And I also, I think it's a, a maybe adds to, like I said, the very few clinical trials that have done the a priori recruitment for, for in the field of nutrition that, that it can be done. So, so when you have these, you know, existing direct-to-consumer uh, genotype nutrient response tests, you know, consumers maybe could see this and then demand that in advance or, you know, regulators or something could could demand at least a, a clinical trial that tests it a priori um, if if, that, if the field's even really regulated. It's, it's pretty lightly regulated right now. So, yeah, they're not my... for diagnostic purposes. <laughs> so, so that's the key exactly, to the yeah. tests. I've had people come to me uh, clinically with some of their nutrigenetics tests and they're like, what does all this mean? And it's kind of like, uh, not much, but it's, or very, you know, things are based off of a single trial with lots of post hoc analyses. And, uh, you know, just because somebody doesn't have a specific variant too, doesn't mean that you don't want them to get a sort of intervention. Responding greater to plant sterols doesn't necessarily mean you won't respond at all. And I think that's the same across a number of variants and, a potential limitation of trying to get into this hyper precise prediction and that, you know, folks might still benefit from interventions that might just benefit slightly less. And you don't want these tests to sort of disincentivize them from making lifestyle or behavioral changes that they would otherwise still benefit from just to a lower degree. Right. And when you're only looking at one or two variants, right, there could be other variants that make them respond even more. It's just not in the test or hasn't been characterized yet. Right. So that's a, you know, eventually, risk scores would, would have to be some way to get to get beyond uh, the individual variants because you could have this variant that says you don't but three other ones that say you would respond really well hypothetically and then you just don't take the, the product or you change your diet and it's it's not optimal for you 
Yeah, when we look at the polygenetic risk scores and for uh, adiposity or BMI and other cardiovascular disease just in the general population, it's amazing how it takes hundreds of variants to even begin to explain a slight percentage of the variability. I think what we're up to like, uh, last big one I saw was like 104 genetic variants for BMI explain like less than 3% of the variability in it, which means you've got tons and tons of factors on the population level that are explaining this phenotype. And uh, I think this idea that we'll have a couple that are predictors really strongly is, is probably going to be stuck in the rare, rare disease world almost. And for the general population predicting diet, we're going to be, we'll be lucky to stumble onto something that becomes a huge effect modifier of response to interventions. I, I would say it's very unlikely that it wouldn't already be found, right? It is like it's rare versus common complex, right? And common complex is common and complex. So it's it's that exact uh, that exact problem. Yeah, especially in a well-nourished population. A lot of this makes me think about some of the, in one carbon metabolism world, you can see humongous effects when you feed very low folate diets or zero choline or you know, very minimal choline. And then once you get up to even just relatively normal levels, the effects go from like odds ratios greater than 10 to, to much tinier, if, if any real risk there. And so a lot of these genotypes might have extremely small metabolic effects that become quite large and really nutritionally stressed populations. But uh, we are not working with a really nutritionally stressed population for some of these outcomes. Yeah. I mean, if there's no selection pressure, then there's no, you know, like it's not, it's not affecting the outcomes on a population level. Right. So it's exactly that they, they may have powerful effects, but only under certain conditions. Yeah. Which is great for researchers. I, you know, keeps us employed and uh, chasing down cool phenotypes. And I, I don't want to dump all over this too much. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, clinically, I think not quite there yet, but I think we're fortunate to be in the era of precision nutrition where there's a bunch of money coming in and thinking really critically about how we look at, what the uh, predictors of individual response are to interventions, or at least maybe not individual, but subpopulations and continually whittling that down to try and predict who will respond and how great, greatly or not greatly they'll respond is a challenge for researchers. And uh, I think to some degree, it's something we've always been done, but it's now a very formalized framework and there's a lot of money pumping into it. And for anybody that's listening that wants to go into a research career, this is this is a time to consider doing it. Yeah, well, I mean, those large cohorts that are being set up for precision nutrition, I mean, they can form the basis for platform populations. And, and if you think about in COVID, where my research is going now, because there's still lots of uh, public health restrictions and, and, and what we can do in, in Manitoba um, and Canada and many places uh, is restricted in terms of in-person in work, um, moving towards interventions where we capture outcomes remotely. We enroll people remotely and we give the interventions, we deliver it to their houses. Um, it's not just a good idea for COVID, but scalability in the future. Having groceries and meals delivered to your houses, the, the, the infrastructure is being developed, right? And it's, it's kind of a normal thing now. So, you know, the, these large, people who want to enroll in a, in a trial to test these things, you could have thousands and thousands and they just never leave their house. Uh, you know, if you, if you use something like, I don't know, if you're looking at glucose variability, you could use continuous glucose monitoring or, or anything that could be measured without having to have someone come in. It gets challenging. You know, you can't, you can't capture 
blood samples very well. You know, the whole Theranos thing just didn't uh, didn't work out. But, uh, <laughs> maybe someone will come up with that where you can have uh, all of those things uh, uh, measured uh, remotely, and that'll that'll really take that last barrier out of having people participate from home. One day, yeah, lots of lots of challenges, but lots of exciting things to do. So. <clears throat> Yeah, with that, I mean, I think uh, I hope folks go in and they they read the full paper and kind of interrogate it. And if uh, anything we've talked about interests you, you, know, you can reach out to us. Both of us are on social media. We can kind of point you to some uh, of the other existing literature on nutrigenetics and critical takes on uh, you know how we actually do this pr- prediction of uh, individual response. Yeah, the previous two trials are for uh, are in AJCN two is in twenty fifteen. So you know, if you want to know why we did this one, you can you can check those out as well. See I will be whole, sure to link to those in the show notes. Yeah, so. see the whole whole uh, um, you know progress. Dylan McKay's career, yeah. Yeah, Dylan McKay's <laughs> career. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, hope to have you back in the future for the other cool work you're doing, uh, be it Genosets or not. It's probably not going to be Gina said, but um, <laughs> I'm really hoping there will be other cool, uh, cool work in the future. So uh, yeah. That I'd, was I'd only a slight back. joke. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. Take care.